0: Alright, well if you're just now joining us, uh, this, uh, this semester we have been studying what is called eschatology, which is simply uh, the last things, the doctrine of the end times, put big scary quotes around end times. And within that topic, we're in kind of a little three-part mini series on something called the millennium, okay? Now if you did not get a chance to hear Jeff's lecture from last week, it was excellent, an excellent introduction to the topic and a discussion on premillennialism, so please listen to that. Uh, next week, we will have our very own Jared Lawson who's gonna get up here and swing for the fences with post-millennialism. And, uh, but, uh, but today we're gonna be talking about what is called amillennialism. Now let me just, Explain why this is a big deal. Okay, so everybody don't look at your notes for a second. Don't look at this whiteboard for a second. Let me just give you kind of a one minute explanation why this is a big deal. This is one of the weirdest, most confusing topics in theology this whole idea of a millennium. Let me tell you why it's important. Imagine that you become a Christian. Hopefully that's true of you, but imagine for a second, if you're not, that you are a Christian and you're so excited. Jesus is coming back. He's going to raise everybody, and then there's eternal life, okay? So you start reading in your Bible. Jesus is coming back. He's going to raise everybody. There's going to be eternal life. You get to the New Testament. Jesus is coming back. He's going to raise everybody. There's eternal life. It's going to be one and done. You're reading your Bible. You work through the Gospels. That's very exciting. You work through Acts. The church is exploding. You work through uh, Paul's letters, and you learn about justification by faith. And you just keep thinking to yourself, I can't wait until Christ comes back, because then it will be done. You get to Revelation. I can't wait till Christ comes back because then it will be done. And then just a few chapters from the very end of the Bible, you trip at the finish line. All of a sudden, instead of Jesus just coming back and it being done, now all of a sudden, it talks about a weird thousand year pre-reign, reign of Christ that has to happen first. And you just, the wind is out of your sails. And so what do you do with that? That's what we're talking about the millennium. The rest of the Bible makes it look like Christ will come back, And then all the stuff will be done. People will be raised, people will be judged, new heavens, new earth, everything's done, okay? That's what it makes it look like until you get to Revelation 20 and it talks about this weird thousand-year period that's not the end yet. That is why the church has historically had to wrestle with this question. How do we understand that thousand-year reign, that what's called a millennium, that's why all these terms have the word millennium in them, How do we understand that thousand-year reign in light of its immediate context and in light of the rest of the scriptures? That's why we're talking about the millennium. If we didn't have Revelation 20, we wouldn't be talking about this. We would say, Christ is gonna come back, raise everybody, judge everybody, and it's done. New heavens, new earth, okay? Uh, But because we have Revelation 20, we have to do something about it, and the church has had to wrestle through this issue for 2,000 years, okay? So as a quick recap, now, Jeff gave an excellent introduction last week. In each of these lessons, we're going to have to recap a little bit because this is such a confusing topic. So please bear with me as I do a little bit of recap of these different positions, and then we'll spend most of our time in the position we're looking at today. We're mainly looking at three specific questions, okay? The first is this, is the thousand-year reign of Christ mentioned in Revelation 20 a literal thousand years? That's the first thing we have to understand. You could even say, is it a literal millennium? Does it have to be, could it be, we we all agree maybe it doesn't have to be, if it was 999 years, God is not a liar, but what if it's 10 years, okay? How far, uh, how close to 1,000 years does it need to be? Number two, what does the millennium in Revelation 20 actually signify? What is the purpose of it? How should we understand it? And then number three, when does Christ come back or return in relation to the millennium? So here's the easiest way to understand this. It's very hard to understand this millennium in Revelation 20. It's very easy to understand where we got the names for the different positions, okay? If Christ, it all has to do with this. When does Christ come back in relation to the millennium? If Jesus comes back before that reign starts, that is called pre-millennialism because Christ comes back, wait for it, pre, Okay. Premillennialism, by the way, uh, I was joking with, uh, with uh, somebody earlier that my handwriting certainly makes it look like the world is getting worse and that postmillennialism is not true. Uh, but uh, premillennialism is that Christ comes back before the reign mentioned in Revelation 20. okay? So all these terms are weird and theological, they might throw you off. All you have to ask yourself is okay, in relation to this reign, this millennium mentioned in Revelation 20, when does Christ come back? Premillennialism says that he comes back before that reign. Post-millennialism says Christ comes back after the rain mentioned in Revelation 20. Jared will be talking about that next week. And then amillennialism is a little bit different, okay? They're not saying, and so this a. Is what's called an alpha privative. It negates something, right? If you are an atheist, you are, believe that there is no God. If you are an agnostic, agnostic, you think there, we don't have knowledge of whether or not there's God, etc. cetera. Amillennial, someone who's amillennial is not someone who denies the millennium, nor are they somebody who just takes scissors and cuts Revelation 20 out of their Bible. What they, what they mean by saying they're is that they don't think that there is a literal separate millennium that is different than the church age. So they would say there's not a separate millennium. The reign in Revelation 20 began 2000 years ago. So the millennialist is not saying, so, so, so to recap, premillennialism, Jesus comes back before the millennium. Postmillennialism, Jesus comes back after the millennium. All Amillennialist will say, we're asking the wrong question. We're, we're interpreting this millennium totally wrongly than we should be interpreting it. It's not a literal millennium. It's not a separate reign from what Christ is doing now. And so they'll say we, we reject those categories in a sense uh, altogether, okay? Now, uh, it's important to realize that you can be a Jesus-loving Christian and hold any of these positions. This is not a matter of orthodoxy. Yes, all of them can't be right. They are contradictory. Yes, God holds one of these and not the other ones, okay? And so you want to try to hold the one God holds, which we don't know which one that is. But uh, you, uh, you need to know that this is not a matter of orthodoxy or whether or not you're a Christian or something like this. Uh, Louis Burkhoff says this, the great reformed uh, uh, thinker says, the doctrine of the millennium has never yet been embodied in a single confession and therefore cannot be regarded as a dogma of the church, okay? This is not like the trinity or the deity and humanity of Christ or something like this. This is, a, uh, this is an issue that is a minor doctrine. Now, let me show you the text in question, okay? Let me show you the text in question. This is the one that throws a curveball in our system. Again, the rest of the Bible would simply say, Christ is coming back, gonna raise everybody, judge everybody, and it's done, let me show you the wrench that is thrown in our eschatological machine. Okay? Revelation 21 through 8. Let's look at this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. I knew it. You know, that little serpent in the garden, one just some weird talking snake, the devil and Satan. Now, look at this next part and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while, kind of a last hurrah. Then I sh- Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were uh, those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Look at this next part. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, notice there's something that happens with believers that's not true of lost people there, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is uh, the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, okay? That's the problem passage, okay? Every Christian agrees we can't just cut that out. It's God's word, it's perfect. God has put that there for us to understand. For, us to, for it to encourage us, for us to know something about God and his plan, okay? So we can't just get rid of it. We have to do something with it. But here's why it's so difficult. It seems like the text is saying, on a surface reading, that before the end is done, before there could just be new heavens and new earth, Jesus has to reign for a 1,000 years on the earth while Christians are already resurrected, but lost people are not, and they're still going around being lost, doing terrible things, okay? That seems to be a weird problem. Okay, now... Having said all of that, let me give you a recap of the different views. I apologize in advance that these charts, we're not gonna go over all this, by the way. So if you're thinking, man, these packets are thick, we're gonna run through this and then we're gonna spend most of our time on the last few pages. I've included some charts here. And if you say, Zach, these charts look terrible. That's because I'm not Tim and I don't know how to make them look good. But might I remind you that the Bible says that Jesus didn't have this appearance that we would want to look upon him. So apparently something can be true and not beautiful uh, at the same time, okay? So uh, let's look at the first position. This is what's called historic premillennialism. Again, what is premillennialism? Christ comes back before, okay? It's pretty before the millennium. The reason it's called historic is because it was held by the early church. Uh, here's the, the, the position. I'm just gonna run through this very quickly. We live in the church age. What is the church age? That's just the age we live in. That's what happens post-Acts. Post the book of Acts is the church age. The uh, pre-millennius, the historic pre believes this is gonna be the order of events. We live today. We will then go through a tribulation, a really bad time where a bunch of Christians are getting killed. Christ will return And we will go up in the clouds to greet him and usher him back down to the earth. Okay, why is that important? Because in the ancient world, when a king came into a city, you would go outside the doors and you would welcome the king into your city. You do that today, probably, when somebody shows up to your house. You go out to their car, greet them, and welcome them in your house. That's the idea of believers being caught up in the air. It's not a pre tribulational rapture. That passage is about the second coming. It's that we meet King Jesus and we usher him back down to earth as a sign of respect. And then there's a millennial reign. And then all the stuff, okay? By all the stuff, I mean judgment and new heavens and new earth and lake of fire for those that are not Christians, et cetera, et cetera. It's on your little chart here. I included, I included two pictures of each one just to make it even simpler for you uh, later on. So the order of events is this tribulation, then the resurrection of believers and the return of Christ, then the millennium, then the judgment and resurrection of non believers and the new heavens and new earth. Who held to it? many people in the early church. That's why it's called historic premillennialism, such as Papias, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Irenaeus, and others, okay? Now, there's another version of premillennialism called dispensational premillennialism. Okay? I'm not going to make you boo for that like we boo for Arius because he's way worse than this position. But uh, this is the one position that nobody, none of our elders hold <laughs> or staff is the dispensational premillennial view. We have, uh, have elders slash staff, some that are premillennial, some that are amillennial, and we even have one postmillennialist. And I will not tell you who it is, but let's just say his name rhymes with cave. Okay. Uh, okay. Dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism holds this that Christ, we're in the church age, here's what it holds. This is the left behind view. This is a view many of you are probably familiar with. That Christ comes first for a secret coming to rapture up believers. So you're just sitting there drinking your coffee and all of a sudden you're a pile of clothes on the floor and you're gone, you're with Jesus. And then there's a, there's a seven-year period of great tribulation. The church doesn't have to go through it. Whew! we get out of that, despite the fact that the Bible tells us 100 times we're going to suffer in the tribulation. We get out of that in the dispensational system. And that's the time that God uses to fulfill all his promises to the Jews. Okay? There's all these promises in the Old Testament to the Jews. When are they going to happen? They're not happening today. They're going to happen when all those Jews see that they're wrong because all the Christians have been evaporated. Okay, so there's the seven year period of tribulation and then Christ comes back again as a, a second second coming and then there's the millennium and then all the stuff, okay? And again, by all the stuff, I mean all the stuff, all the other stuff after the millennium, okay? What is the order of events? It's very convoluted, check it out. You have resurrection of believers and the first return of Christ, what's called the rapture. You then have tribulation you then have the second return of Christ and the resurrection of martyrs. In the dispensational system, there are two returns of Christ and three resurrections, okay? Uh, resurrection of martyrs. Then you have a millennium. Then you have judgment and the resurrection of non-believers and the new heavens and a new earth. Who held to it? Not held until the mid-19th century, primarily in English-speaking countries. Guys that held to it, John Nelson Darby, C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Schaefer, Dwight Moody, Charles Ryrie, and others, Okay? Now, in light of those two premillennial systems, postmillennialism is gonna look a lot simpler. What is postmillennialism? Again, shout it out. Christ comes back after the millennium mentioned in Revelation. Now, look how much simpler this chart is here. We're in the church age, which is just what we've been in since the book of Acts, okay? And that, that turns into the millennial reign of Christ. As the gospel goes out, as the world becomes more Christianized, as those like Kanye receive Christ as evidence that the world is getting more Christian, post millennialism, uh, the church age kind of morphs into this millennial reign of Christ. Things get better, more Christian, and then you have the return of Christ and all the stuff. It's much simpler. So here's the order of events the church expands and becomes the millennium, the church age, if you want to say it that way. You then have the return of Christ, resurrection of everyone, and final judgment, and then the new heavens and new earth. It's a simpler system who held to this view, mainly those after the time of the Reformers. Jonathan Edwards, John Cotton, John Owen, Charles Finney, interestingly enough, and others. Now, what's interesting is someone like Jonathan Edwards is postmillennial because he believes in the power and sovereignty of the gospel to make the world more Christianized. Someone like Charles Finney thinks that he can do it through his own efforts, if he can preach and get people to make a decision for Christ, despite the fact that the Bible says we are dead in our sins. I one time heard a post-millennialist say something that was really great. He said, well, here's why I'm post-millennial. It's a lot of fun, and Jonathan Edwards held it, so I'm tempted to rest my case at that, okay? So there you go. Jared will be talking about that next week, okay? So everybody with me so far on what these different views are? Okay, now today we're going to spend our time in what is called millennialism, and look how simple it is. Look how nice and neat and symmetrical and beautiful it is, okay? There's something about the simplicity that is brilliance. So here's all millennialism. Here's what it's gonna say. Let's look at the first chart. We're in the church age, like we've been in since the book of Acts again and the new covenant here. There is no literal future millennium. Revelation 20 is now. Okay? What's going on in Revelation 20 is what happens when Christ comes and binds the strong man, the devil, in his ministry, and does All the stuff. Christ has been reigning for a long time. We're not just waiting for this future reign of Christ. He's been reigning for 2,000 years. And the fact that he's God means that he's been reigning even before that. And so in all millennialism, here's how it's simply laid out. Here's Here's the order of events. You have the return of Christ, the resurrection of everyone, and the final judgment that all happens in the same time frame. And then you have the new heavens and new earth. Ooh, that's great. Okay? That's nice. It's neat. It's clean. Who held to it? This is most of church history, including the Reformed tradition, is amillennial, including people in the early church. You know, we call premillennialism historic premillennialism because some early church fathers held it, but not all of them, okay? So, uh, Eusebius, Clement, Origen, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, probably Jesus, and others, okay? That's a joke, okay? That's just a joke. Uh, that's, that's who has held to this view of, uh, of amillennialism, okay? So... That's a lot of information, so everybody take kind of a deep breath, just relax and kind of clear your mind. We're just going to focus on one system today, okay? You've already been given 900 charts and all these other words. You've got, you've got it here. I printed it in your notes because I wanted you to have this as a resource, but let's now just focus on one view. It's easier to understand these views if we really focus on one at a time. So today, we're just going to focus on amillennialism, and then next week, uh, again, Jared will be talking about postmillennialism, and so, uh, so let's talk about a few things with amillennialism. First... We're going to see what does it teach then we're going to see what are its strengths and then we're going to see what are its weaknesses okay we're going to see what are its weaknesses so let me give you a few of these first of all it teaches that the millennium mentioned in revelation 20 is a present reality with a future consummation okay christ is already reigning now the devil to some extent has been bound now we would agree with that in the old testament god's mainly doing stuff with israel And yes, you can convert to Judaism, but the other nations he allows to kind of go their own way. It says this in the book of Acts. But now that Christ has come and he has bound the strong man and the gospel goes to all nations and we have the spirit, you see the devil's influence severely restricted. So the millennium is a present reality, okay? So to think of it this way, the millennium mentioned in Revelation 20 is not a separate thing than what's going on right now, okay? It's not a separate thing from the church age. But it will have a future consummation, there will be a time where Christ comes back bodily, and then it's the end, okay? And then it's the end. So it is, fits within a larger biblical pattern of already and not yet. The kingdom of God has already begun. Jesus says that, that if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you, and then he cast out demons. We're not waiting for the kingdom of God to begin. It's already begun. Yet we're waiting for the kingdom of God to be fulfilled, to be completed at, uh, at the end of time, Your salvation is already already and not yet. You're already saved, you're already justified, but you're also being sanctified. You're also being saved. Well, in the same way, the millennium, in a sense, is already and not yet, that it has already begun, but we're still waiting for its fullness, if you want to say it that way. The next thing they teach is the church age and the millennium are the same thing. You'll notice in each of these other systems, they're not the same thing. The church age is different than the millennial reign of Christ in both systems of premillennialism. There's even a shift in post-millennialism of the church age, which eventually becomes the millennium, but there is a difference because things have gotten better, okay? Things have gotten better, and so the church age, though, in this system and the millennium are the same thing. Next, this one's really important to me. The second coming, the judgment, and bodily resurrection all happen in the same time frame. The second coming, the judgment, and bodily resurrection all happen in the same time frame. It's very simple. Christ comes back, raises everyone, judges everyone, and then there's either new heavens, new earth, or lake of fire, depending on uh, whether or not you know Christ. The system is very nice and neat. It seems to accord pretty well with most other passages in the Bible that it seems like Christ comes back and then all the stuff is done. There's not this other thousand-year kind of reign going on. When it comes to all millennialists, some define it as Christ reigning over Christians who've already died, what's called the church triumphant because they have been triumphant, Others define it as Christ's reign over the hearts of believers today, the church militants, called militant because we are still pressing on, onward Christian soldiers. Some just generically define it as Christ's reign, okay? Look at this next part, the next thing they teach. Now, we're gonna have to look at Revelation 20 here because this, uh, this is very important. The first resurrection, notice there's quotes around that. That's language from the, uh, the book of Revelation. The first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20 is a reference to spiritual resurrection resurrection i.e. regeneration when you become a christian god raises up your dead soul he gives you new spiritual life okay resurrection or it's a reference to the martyrs going into the presence of god but it is not a reference to physical resurrection of believers that's an important teaching for amillennialism let's look at this passage here's what they'll say also i saw the what what does a soul look like What does it it look like? I mean, if you know, now's the time to shout it out so we can see that you're kind of (laughs) weird. Does it look like a floaty light orb? What is a soul? Notice that there's something soulish going on here, okay? There's something uh, not bodily going on as we're talking about these martyrs. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had uh, not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So the amillennialist will say the first resurrection is a reference either to regeneration or the souls of those who've been martyred going into the presence of God, okay? But it's something that is... Spiritual, not, uh, not bodily physical in that sense. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priest of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years, okay? Another important part of the millennial position is this next point, and we'll show you some passages from the Gospels. The binding of Satan mentioned in Revelation 20 happened in the ministry of Jesus, Okay? You don't hold that if you are premillennial. You'll say this binding of Satan is something future, but Satan is not bound now, right? He is doing a bunch of Satan things. Look around, they will say, okay? But the all millennials will say this, the Bible actually teaches that, in a sense, the devil has already been bound. Let's look at a few passages Luke 10 17, 19. The seventy-two, these are the disciples that are following Jesus. Notice that he has the the core twelve, but he actually has more disciples than that. The seventy-two returned with joy after Jesus sends them out on this mission, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When did when did the devil fall down like lightning from heaven? When is he, in a sense, thrown into a pit? Well, when the gospel is being preached. When the gospel is being preached. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, that's a reference to these demonic kind of things, and over uh, all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So now we're going to pass out the copperheads and the rattlesnakes because of this passage and we will handle them. And that's not what it's about. Uh, serpents and scorpions are references to these demonic things. Notice that the devil comes as a serpent. Scorpions are seen as these unclean, stinging, bad things, okay? Luke 11:20 20 through 22. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When did the kingdom of God begin, according to this passage, in the ministry of Jesus? Everybody look at me real quick. That's why Jesus is doing all his cool miracle stuff, okay? He's showing that he's reversing the effects of the fall. He's saying, I'm getting us back to Eden. Let me show you. Adam sinned. It brought about death. Lazarus, get up. Get up. Adam's sin and brought about demonic oppression, demons be cast out. Adam's sin brought about sickness, be healed. Jesus isn't doing cool magic tricks. He's not David Blaine or Chris Angel. He's showing that the kingdom of God is among them, that he's fixing what has become broken in the world, okay? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, the devil, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's what Jesus is doing. In his ministry, he's binding the devil. The devil's like this strong man that other people can't beat up. He's stronger than them. Uh, but when one stronger than him comes, Jesus, then he is able to bind the devil and he is able to plunder his goods. Notice the language of binding, the same kind of language you see in Revelation 20, okay? Revelation 12 Seven through nine, John writes, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, that's he being the dragon, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Well, that seems to look like the devil being thrown down happened before Revelation 20. Notice that 12 comes before 20. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that, okay? That's that's just for free. Notice there in Revelation 12, the devil's already thrown down, so what can he be talking about in Revelation 20? It can't be chronological. The book of Revelation cannot be strictly chronological in that sense. Another thing it teaches. The binding of Satan in Revelation 20 means his ability to deceive the nations is restricted, not that he cannot deceive in any way. The fact that the gospel goes to all nations in the book of Acts is evidence that Satan's influence to deceive the nations has been severely limited, okay? So what the all-millennials will say is this. Notice that what's emphasized in the text when the devil is bound is that he cannot deceive the nations. That's true, he cannot deceive the nations. The gospel goes out to the nations and people all over the world with different languages and cultures are Christians because the power of the gospel is stronger than the power of the devil. So whereas the pre will say the devil has to be bound completely The amillennials will say, no, the emphasis is not so much on him being bound completely. It's on him not being able to deceive the nations, which he's not able to do since the coming of Christ. Since the book of Acts, the gospel goes out and people are converted, not just Jew, but Gentile as well. Last thing to note, amillennialism, like premillennialism, so in what way are they similar? Teaches that the world and lost culture is getting worse, not better. Okay? So amillennialism, premillennialism, this is a point where they would agree. They would look around and they would say, things are getting worse. Uh, The world is getting worse. The world is getting more and more pagan. Yes, we might clean up our sins, but there are far more lost people doing them. Okay? It's not a benefit to beat your wife behind closed doors just because you don't beat her in public. The problem is the beating, period. And so, yes, we've cleaned up a lot of our sins, and we do them behind closed doors, or we do them on the internet, or whatever. Someone's a kind atheist at work, but their heart is still in rebellion against God, and so they'll say the world is pretty clearly getting worse. Not better. Not to mention that there have been more Christian martyrs in the 1900s than all previous centuries combined. More Christians were killed in the 1900s, the 20th centuries, than every year before that put together. It doesn't sound like the world is becoming more Christian and things are getting better. It sounds like it's getting worse. But we'll hear the opposing position next time. uh, Next time on postmillennialism. Now, what are its strengths? Let's look at strengths of all millennialism and then let's let's look at uh, some weaknesses. First, strength. It is nice and neat. The resurrection, the judgment, the second coming all happen at once. It's probably what you naturally assume will happen. And by that, I mean as you're reading the rest of the Bible okay? As you're reading the rest of the Bible, it really seems like Christ comes back and it's the end. He comes back, there's resurrection judgment, and it's the end. There's not this, uh, this intermediate kind of long uh, stage, okay? Another strength. Now, look at this one. I think this one's really important. In Revelation 19, does that come before 20? It does. Again, you didn't even, you didn't even have to, some people looked confused. I saw one person nod their head no, okay? Uh, it does. I'm kidding, Nobody did that. Uh, 19 comes before 20. Notice this. In Revelation 19, everyone evil is condemned. So how can you still have lost people in the millennium in Revelation 20? I get that the book of Revelation is not a strict chronology. It speaks in circles, right? With the, uh, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bulls tell the same story three times with increasing severity. That's how you read the book of Revelation, by the way. But it is interesting to me that evil is dealt with in Revelation 19, so it makes no sense to say that you still haven't dealt with the evil in Revelation 20. Next. The numbers and symbols in Revelation are highly symbolic, so the same should probably be true of the millennium. That's why it is the awe millennial position. They don't believe in a future, separate, literal millennium because here's what they'll say. They'll say, dear post- and premillennialists, do you believe in a literal dragon? Yes, he stands for a literal figure Satan, but the dragon is an image, and the sword coming out of Jesus's mouth is an image, and the weird locust with women's hair and big teeth, those are an image, and uh, the woman with 12 stars over her head representing the 12 tribes of Israel who gives birth to the Messiah. These are these are all images. Why do you say image, 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 and then you get to Revelation 20 and you're like, super literal, a thousand years, rain on the earth, devil's not free at all. Why do you do that, they would say. They would say the entire book is symbolic, so let's be consistent. Let's interpret Revelation 20 in a more symbolic way. Another thing, Revelation 20 doesn't explicitly say that there is a reign of Christ on the earth. That's something that's presupposed in several of these systems, mainly both the uh, premillennial systems. Notice it doesn't say that there's a reign of Christ on the earth. The thrones are in heaven, and so are the martyrs. And so we may also conclude that Christ's reign is in heaven as well. Okay? That's something to keep in mind here with this system. Next, it recognizes that you can't be overly precise in details when it pertains to apocalyptic literature, okay? This is true also of prophetic literature. There there are passages in the Old Testament that uh, talk about this Messiah coming from David's line and how when he's disobedient, God will rebuke him. Well, Jesus is not disobedient. You can't overstretch the analogy. It's talking initially about Solomon and his descendants, but it has a greater fulfillment in Christ, but Christ is never disobedient. So you have to remember, when you're reading apocalyptic literature or prophetic literature, you have to say what elements pertain to this situation and what elements do not. And so they'll say, keep that in mind when you're reading the Revelation, uh, the, the book of Revelation here and Revelation 20. Next, this one I think is an important point. The millennial position accords well with other passages that teach that Christ is reigning now. Let's look at a few of these. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on what? Earth. So when does Jesus begin his earthly reign? At the resurrection and ascension. On earth has been given to me. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power, and domin- I'm sorry, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Does it make any sense to say that there is a future reign of Christ that is not the final end time? Because this passage seems to say that Christ is reigning in every respect to the highest degree. Everything is under his feet. He's over heaven and earth. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, etc. 1 Peter 3, 21 through 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been. That's like a super past tense, almost like a perfect. It might be a perfect. I'd have to look. Uh, powers, having been subjected to him. It's already happened. When is everything subjected under his feet? It's already happening. It happened 2,000 years ago, and it's happening now. In addition to passages that are already saying that Christ is reigning, there are passages that are saying we are reigning with Christ. So if you look at Revelation 20, it says that there are these Christians who reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now you might think, that doesn't look like I'm reigning with Christ. We just had tornado drills on Sunday. This doesn't look like uh, much of a a rain. I still get sick, I get colds, people are mean to me. People send mean emails because they don't like something I said. This doesn't look like I'm reigning with Christ, okay? But look here in these passages. I'll give you one, one of the strongest ones. There are several places, but for I remember keeping this short because my notes were already like nine pages. Ephesians 2, five through six. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. How did God make us alive? So when the All-Millennialist says the first resurrection is regeneration, salvation, that's kind of the language that's used here in Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 here is saying you are already reigning with Jesus. You're in Christ, so what's true of him is true of you, and so you are reigning with Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. You are, in a sense, reigning with Christ despite the fact that we still live in a broken, fallen world. Okay? Next. Revelation 20 may be retelling Revelation 19, 11 through 21 from another perspective. Now, we don't have time to look at that today, but if you want to make a note there and go back and read Revelation 19, 11 through 21, some people think that Revelation 20 is recapping that story from another perspective. Again, Revelation is not chronological. It's cyclical. It mentions some of the same things over and over again. You're supposed to understand the imagery, okay? And then lastly, sometimes the best defense is a good offense, It avoids the weirdness of both postmillennialism and premillennialism. The Achilles heel of postmillennialism is that it requires that the secular world is becoming more holy and more Christian. The Achilles heel of premillennialism, listen to this, is that it requires that resurrected Christians are living on earth with non-resurrected lost people who are still sinning and dying. That's the biggest problem I have with premillennialism, which by the way, I might be a premillennialist, I don't know, it depends on what day you ask me. Today I'm an amillennialist uh, because I put Jesus as people that believe amillennialism. But by Thursday, I will change my mind, okay? The biggest problem with the premillennialist system system is this, when you die, you don't get to rest in peace. You have to go through a thousand years of still being around lost people, sinning and dying and rebelling against Christ. It's like Protestant purgatory, okay? You don't get to, to, to rest in peace. You don't get to just reign with Christ. You have to go through this, Weird thousand-year period. However long that is, it's a long time. I'll just be like, can we get through this? I'm ready to get onto the real stuff. That's a big problem with premillennialism. What is the Achilles' heel of amillennialism? There are two of them. Both his heels. Achilles' mother in this example are holding both of his heels as he's dipped into the river Styx. And so he has two Achilles' heels in this case. So let's look at the weaknesses of amillennialism. And these ones are pretty strong. Okay? The first Achilles' heel of all millennialism is this, look at this. It has to interpret the word resurrection, which is the same Greek word, by the way, throughout the passage, resurrection, as a spiritual resurrection in the first instance, but as a physical resurrection in the second. Every single time the word resurrection, it's anastasis, means to stand up. Stasis means to stand, like an antihistamine, right? Stands against your allergies or whatever. Uh, and ana means to go up, so you have this standing up. The Greek word anastasis, anastasis is used in the New Testament in reference to people every time. When it's referenced to people, it means physical resurrection, okay? So let me say it, say it this way. Look back at Revelation 20 on the first page of your sheet. Look at verse four. Actually, let's do at the very end of verse four. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's underlined. Now look at this. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, which always means bodily resurrection in reference to people. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. There it is again. Over such the second death will have no power, but they will be priests of God, etc. They will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Here's the problem with amillennialism. Every single time in the New Testament that resurrection is used. Every single time that the word anastasis is used in the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek, when it's in reference to people, it always means bodily resurrection, every time. The amillennialist literally has to say this. The first time the word resurrection is used, it's spiritual resurrection, but the next time it's used, it's physical resurrection. Same Greek word in the same sentence. That's a huge problem with amillennialism, okay? Okay. Uh, I think Jeff mentioned the story last week that uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who wrote a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, where he looks at basically every occurrence of resurrection, even outside of the Bible, comes to the conclusion, Anastasis always means bodily resurrection, except one time in Revelation 20, so that we don't get into something weird. Okay, that's a problem. Now, there is a response to that. Note that this is the first place it is the phrase first resurrection is used. It doesn't just say resurrection. It says first resurrection. So John may be trying to use the word in a novel way. You don't get to just make up a new interpretation of a word, but if the context around it gives you indicators that it might be different, then you can give that word nuance. The Bible doesn't usually talk about first resurrection. It does here, though. And so that might be meaning something different. Now, here's the second Achilles heel of uh, millennialism. The devil seems completely bound, not just limited in Revelation 20. Let's look at it again, Revelation 20, 1 through 3. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Okay? Not a chain that's small, where the devil's still on his leash, but he can do some stuff, but rather a big chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now look at this next line. This is pretty strong against the amillennial position and threw him into the pit and shut it uh, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So the text is saying this. You've got the devil. He's bound with a chain. He's thrown in a pit. It's covered. It's sealed. And he cannot do anything to deceive anybody. That's what the text is saying. The text is very strong. Not that the devil's power is merely limited. It seems like he can't do anything at all. How much can he do when he's in a pit that he can't get out of to deceive the nations? And by the way, the pit's shut, and by the way, even as he's in the pit, he's in these chains. That seems to be a problem with the obelineal system. That doesn't look like what's happening now. Let me read you some passages. First Peter 5:8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Well, is he in a pit or is he prowling around? Am I safe or am I not? Prowling around like a roaring lion sounds the opposite of being bound. It sounds like he's in a position of strength. Second Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice, the God of this world, Satan, is currently blinding the minds of unbelievers. Ephesians 2.2. In which you once walked, this is talking about our state before Christ, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 1 John five nineteen. we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, it doesn't seem like he's not deceiving the nations anymore. It seems like he's doing a pretty jolly good job of deceiving all lost people, right? That's what this text seems to say. Another weakness of the system. The promise of reigning with Christ a 1,000 years seems to be, and you can underline this word, a future hope for John's readers to stay faithful, not something that's currently happening now. The promise that you get to reign with Christ in Revelation 3.21, for example, is not something that Christians currently have in the church age, but something they are to try to seek in the future by remaining faithful. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne and I, uh, also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay? So notice that this is a reward. The amillennialist has to say, you're already reigning with Christ. The uh, premillennialist can say, well, wait a second. This future reign of you being with Christ has some greater fulfillment because it's something that's promised to you if you remain faithful. If you remain faithful. Next, another weakness here. The amillennial position says that the first resurrection is regeneration and the second is physical resurrection. But look at that that may imply that those in the first resurrection do not partake in the the second resurrection. Look at this, Revelation 25. The rest of the dead, not those who are in the first category, but just those in the second category. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. What I mean by that is this. It seems kind of like the text is saying, if you partake in the first resurrection, you won't partake in the second. But that means if the first resurrection is just spiritual and not bodily, it means you're not gonna be bodily raised. That's a problem with the amillennial position. And then lastly, the premillennialist would say that nowhere in scripture does scripture actually say that there will not be two resurrections, which means the amillennialist cannot use that point against him. One of the things amillennialists will constantly say is, dear premillennialist, where does the Bible say there's two resurrections? And they'll say, you're reversing the burden of proof. You're reversing the burden of proof. I don't have to show you that there are, the Bible says there's two resurrections. I would need a passage that says there's not two resurrections for you to be able to make your point, okay? This is just an argument from silence. The premillennials will say, "Okay." Having said all of that, what position do I hold? If you hold a gun to my head, I just say, "Pull the trigger." <laughs> uh, when it comes to these things, I, I think that it makes more sense. So I'm closer to the all-millennial position, at least today. Although traditionally I've been historic premill. Now let me tell you why. It has to do with how you do a greater theological hermeneutic. Okay. What do I mean by that? When you interpret the Bible, you can't just look at a passage, forget everything else you know, and just try to interpret that passage. Christians do that all the time. We think that's a virtue. Let me just read this passage and pretend like I don't know what the Bible says elsewhere. That is an unchristian way of reading scripture. If you just come to a passage where Jesus says the Father is greater than I, and you divorce that from everything else that says Jesus, the Father is not greater than Jesus, in the sense that they are equally God, then that passage makes no sense. If you just come to the passage where Jesus says he doesn't know when he's coming back and you divorce that from all the passages that say that he is God and therefore has the same mind as God, he's the same substance, you're going to come to a real weird interpretation. You can never just interpret one little passage of the Bible apart from the rest of Scripture. You have to interpret that in light of the rest of Scripture. So as you read Revelation 20, you should be thinking to yourself, what does the Bible say in every other passage? Well, it says that the strong man to some extent is bound. Yes, the imagery here is too strong, but the imagery in Revelation is too strong. Elsewhere, it very clearly seems that Jesus comes back and the story's done. Elsewhere, the, the, the criminal on the cross gets to be with Jesus in paradise that day. Not, today you'll be with me in paradise, and then later there'll be a thousand years where you don't get to be because there'll still be lost people killing each other, and then you'll actually get to be, right? Those kind of things. So I, I think you can never just say, what does this passage seem to mean in its immediate context? You have to interpret it in light of everything else the Bible says, because that's how God interprets his own word that the clearer passages of the Bible interpret the less clear. So if you say, Zach, it seems like you're, it seems like you've got a puzzle piece, or like, a, like a, a puzzle, okay? Has so anybody done a puzzle recently? I hate puzzles. I've never been patient enough to do a puzzle. I hate puzzles. I hate them when I was a kid. I hated coloring. I've got too much energy. I don't care about puzzles. But here's what I would do if I was doing a puzzle. I would take a piece, and if it didn't fit, i just pull out my knife, and i give it a little shave. Now I'm having a great time. Yes, Mona Lisa's got a bunch of weird looking stuff on her face, but I'm crushing that puzzle. Or maybe I'll dip it in some water, let it get all swollen up if it's too small, and just smash it down in there. If you say, Zach, it seems like you're taking Revelation 20. You've got your whole system, your puzzle's already built, you've got one last piece, it's Revelation 20. It doesn't quite fit, so it seems like you're trimming the edges, okay? Here's what I would say to you. I'm not trimming the edges if that passage occurs in a book that is already highly symbolic, not literal, the points are not meant to be overly pressed. The book of Revelation as apocalyptic literature trims that puzzle piece for me so I can fit it into my system nice and neat. But talk to me tomorrow and I'll change my position. Okay, why does it matter? Yes, we talk about all these things. Why does it matter that we're talking about the millennium? Three reasons for you. Theologically, culturally, and personally. Theologically, God wants us to know everything he has put into the Bible. Are you blessed, is there some benefit to you in simply knowing truth, yes or no? If you're to worship God with all your mind, he's honored just as you think true things. Did you know that? I think we have a tendency to think that uh, our relationship with God only has to do with our actions instead of realizing, no, it's doctrinal, it's theological. I'd say it even stronger. If you're a lost person and you know more of the Bible than another lost person, that is still better than that lost person who doesn't know the Bible. God's word is a blessing. It is a means of grace. Knowing truth is always better than not knowing truth. That's the first reason we study this is because it's in the Bible. The second one is very important. It's a cultural reason. God wants us to know the direction the world is going and to be aware of the times. So this seems like a small issue, but it does affect how you view the rest of the world. If you think that the world is becoming worse and less Christian, that will cause you to act one way. If you think the world is becoming better and more Christian, that will cause you to act another way. If you think that Christ is coming back and then there's glory for you, that will cause you to act differently than if you think you've got to go through this thousand years first before things get good. It does affect the way that you act. It does affect the way that you see culture, okay? Uh, it affects a lot of things when it comes to your hope, etc. And then Personally. God wants our knowledge of what happens in the future to give us hope in the present. Why has God given us things like the book of Revelation? Despite popular belief, it's not so you can hunker down in a basement and try to calculate the numbers and the times with your shotgun shells and your cans of beans. Rather, it's so that you might have hope. When you are struggling with your faith, when you are being persecuted, when it seems like the world around you has abandoned God, remain faithful because Christ is coming back and everything's gonna be okay. Revelation gives you a picture of what's happening from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective. From your perspective, you're getting killed. You're getting martyred. The beast, Rome, and evil empires are oppressing Christians, and there's the sexual immorality of uh, this, this harlot that rides on the beast, and there's all this evil going around. People are being traded. There is murder. There's sexual immorality. There's witchcraft. There's idolaters. The devil seems to be winning, and then all of a sudden in Revelation, you get a perspective from heaven's view. And what's going on? The lamb is on the throne, and he's being worshipped, and everything's okay. And one day, he will come back, and he will judge and punish our oppressors, and he will vindicate the righteous. That's the hope of the book of Revelation. That's what it's meant supposed to do. We as Christians look like the underdog. The book of Revelation is to tell us, no, the devil is the underdog. That's the point, okay? That's the point. So, with that in mind, our very own Robert Jeffrey Ashley is going to come up and uh, help undo some of the damage I've done as we answer a few questions that you guys hopefully have texted in uh, through, uh, through Q&A. And uh, again, uh, if we don't get to your question, feel free to send it to us as an email. We're not trying to avoid it, although there are some we are. We get some real weird stuff sometimes. Uh, but typically we're not, we just don't have time to get to everything, okay? So.
1: All right, seven questions, and then someone sent in a Parks and Rec joke that I thought was funny, but I won't share. Uh, okay. Uh, first question, which of these views holds that the 1000 year reign is literal? And so I'll, uh, give some initial thoughts and then if you have anything to add, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, uh, you see the number thousand that is used metaphorically figuratively throughout the, the scripture. And, uh, so think of the passage that says that God owns the cattle on what? a thousand hills. Does that mean only a thousand hills? He doesn't own the cattle on, you know, 1,500 hills or 10,000 hills or something like that. No, that's an, uh, the expression is God owns all the cattle. Or uh, better is uh, one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Or one day as is as if it's a thousand years or something like that. So we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, none of the views, whether you are dispensational pre mill, historic pre mill, Aw mill or post-mill, none of those views absolutely require that it be a, a literal 1,000 years. Although in dispensational uh, premillennialism, you typically find much more of the argument that that is a literal thing. That's part of the, the consistency of the dispensational position is that they tend to, to, to read things a little bit more uh, literally. In the aw mill position, it can't be literal because uh, it's already been 2,000 years. And, uh, and so, uh, but none of the, the positions require it. The one that you would most likely see it in would be uh, some forms of post-millennialism or in uh, dispensational pre-mill or in historic pre-mill. So, anything you want to add? Uh,
0: yeah, so if I were to ask you this, in Revelation 20, we've used this example a few times, not Revelation 20, in Revelation, it talks about this sharp two-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. If I say to you, is that literal? How would you answer that? You'd probably say, well, it's not literal in the sense that he vomits a sword. I don't know what to see the purpose of that. But it is literal that he judges by his word. His word that cuts to the joints and marrow, that's what he uses to judge. That's literal. So you have to realize when we're talking about figurative things, there's still a literal point. Okay? The devil's a literal figure even though the dragon imagery is imagery. Okay? Or uh, when Jesus says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, do I say, is that literal? Well, he has a literal point. So just know there's always a literal point, even if there's figurative imagery that's used. So in that sense, the views hold that there's some type of literal reign of Christ. The question you're asking is, is God a liar if it's 999 years or 1001 years or something like that? And like Jeff said, that, that wouldn't, if, if anybody was in the millennium for 1001 years, no one would call God a liar. Let's say it that way. Uh, One other thing. In the dispensational way of reading Scripture, here's the bigger issue. They will say you should interpret everything literally until you cannot. Okay? Start with interpreting it literally and then change it. There's two problems with that. One, that's completely subjective. What seems literal to you is not the same as somebody else. But two, and this is the bigger one, it ignores the genre of Scripture. When I write a poem, you don't start by saying, I'm going to read this poem. I start reading it literally. And then, if it gets weird, I'm going to make it metaphorical. You say, no, I'm going to start with figurative language because it's a poem. So in the same way, we have to let the genre of Scripture dictate how we interpret it, not starting with this arbitrary rule. So, That's good.
1: Um, so you said that an ah-mill doesn't think that things are getting better. Uh, so why is that? Why can an ah not say that things are uh, getting better?
0: Yeah, uh, that is a bit of an overstatement. I mean, there are… All- so here's what's weird… Most Reformed guys either took on the all-mill or the post-mill position. So there is some bleed over between the two. You'll notice if you look at those charts, they're very similar. You can be an all-mill person and think the world is getting better. Uh, that When I say that, it's, it's not most all-millers. If I were to pull all of them throughout history, they would say the world seems to be getting worse and worse. But you can be all-millennial and hold that the world is getting better. You can also be post-millennial and hold that there's one last hurrah that the devil has at the end of time. The things get better, better, better. Then the devil does have kind of one last, uh, you know, one last kind of bachelor party. And then there's the end, okay? And so uh, there there are variances within all the systems. Uh, But typically what happens is the amillennial person is looking at the rest of scripture to say, does the Bible seem to say things are getting bad? And when Jesus says the road is wide that leads to destruction and there are many on it, that sounds like most people continue to be lost. When Jesus says, when the son of man returns, will he find faithfulness on the earth? The answer to that seems to be no. He's thinking that there won't be much faith when he comes back. So there are other passages that do seem to say uh, the world is getting worse, but anyway.
1: Yeah, so you could be, uh, you could be pre-mill, you could be amill, you could be post-mill and think things are going to get progressively better. Depending on which one of those, you would also then find some sort of tribulation at the end. Uh, post-mill, though, is the only one that requires that things get better first, because that's a, uh, a necessary uh, step in the, uh, the system. Uh, next question. Uh, if there is not a separate millennium and the reign in Revelation 20 began 2,000 years ago, when does the 1,000-year reign begin during the, uh, the church age? And so this, we might have gotten this question before you actually uh, addressed it. But in the amill uh, perspective, those things are synonymous. The church age and the millennium mean the exact same thing. And so if you're premill, if you're postmill, those mean different things. But according to amillennialism, which is what we're mo- mainly focusing on this particular week, uh, those things are synonymous. And so the 1,000-year reign, the millennium, is the 2,000-year church age or the, uh, if, if Jesus tarries, 3,000 years, 4,000 years, whatever it uh, it might be. Anything to add to that? No? Um, okay, we, we got this other question that uh, is good, but we're going to address it. Uh, so I'll just I'll mention it and then uh, tell you we'll address it in a couple of weeks. Is meeting Jesus in the sky symbolic? Do we need to do anything with that? We do need to do something with that. We're going to do something with that in a couple of weeks when we talk about the rapture, what it is, whether or not it is anything like you think it is, and so forth. So we will talk about meeting Jesus in the sky and uh, and what that means. Number six, is the uh, is the Greek word for raised with Christ in Colossians 3 different from what is used in Revelation? Uh, Zach talked about the, the use of the word anastasis, which always means uh, physical resurrection, Uh, with the potential exception of this particular passage. Uh, The word that's used in Colossians 3 is uh, sun uh, igero, And uh, and it basically just means to be raised with. And so it is a totally different word. And uh, and so in Colossians 3, it's it's referring to being spiritually raised um, versus this word here, which refers to uh, resurrection. Want to add anything? anything?
0: We're not saying, there are many places in the Bible, it's true to say you're spiritually resurrected. It's true to say that God has raised up your soul. It's true to say all those kind of things. That's not the question, okay? We have, in a sense, been raised with Christ. The question is the one specific word, resurrection, anastasis, that's where the woman's name, Anastasia, comes from. She's named resurrection. Uh, that that word, when it refers to people, only ever refers to bodily resurrection, like physical getting out of the grave with your skin kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that's what makes it tough for Revelation 20 is the amillennialist has to make it mean something it doesn't mean ever,
1: uh, you addressed this. Again, this might have come in uh, before you addressed it. But can the first resurrection be when Christians die and yet live spiritually, and the rest of the dead are non-believers waiting on judgment? That is what amillennialism says in terms of their interpretation of what the re- first resurrection is versus the second resurrection. The first resurrection is what we would refer to as being made alive, the intermediate state. You, you die and you're immediately with Jesus, that is the first resurrection according to Amil. Uh, and the second resurrection is the resurrection of unbelievers at the end of time. So that is according to Amillennial theology that is it. Uh, if, you are, uh, if you're pre premill, that would certainly be, uh, be different.
0: Yeah. N- notice I had mentioned in that thing that resurrection for them could be the souls going into God's presence. That's the idea that when you die, your soul goes to be with God. In that sense, you're spiritually resurrected. Uh, the reason I said that it could be new birth or that is because the two bleed together in amillennialism. Again, there's an already and a not yet. In a sense, you're already resurrected. There's another sense in which you're lifted up, resurrected as your soul goes before Christ. And then there's the, this actual resurrection bodily. But yes, that that is a very big key point to amillennialism. Uh,
1: if you want more on that, we call that the intermediate state, the state between when you die and the resurrection. Uh, we have a uh, teaching on that called the intermediate state. So. Uh, last question, with such compelling weaknesses for all millennialism, does believing this just mean, so if you hold to this, does that just mean that those weaknesses are not as compelling as the pre and post weaknesses? And, uh, and so uh, I think the way that you uh, would want to address it is to say each of these positions, whether you are pre-mill or post-mill or all-mill, each of these have strengths. Each of them have, have weaknesses. And the goal is to say what has the strongest strengths and what has the weakest weaknesses. And, uh, and so where, where you're landing in regards to those. So this is not something like the resurrection of Christ which the church has universally held, it has only strengths and there's no weaknesses whatsoever, or the doctrine of the Trinity or something like that. This is something where no matter what your position is, there's going to be some degree of strength and some degree of weakness, which is a reason that we need to be charitable toward one another, a reason that we have elders who are pre-mill, elders who are post-mill, and elders who are on-mill, because this is not something that we need to divide over, or it's something that we need to discuss, it's something that we need to... Uh, study, uh, but it's not something that we need to fight over, and uh, and so, yes, that would be the position if you hold to all millennial theology. You would say, I acknowledge these weaknesses. I just find them to be less weak than the weaknesses of pre or post. Likewise, if you are post, you say, I acknowledge there are some weaknesses here, but I think that they are not as weak as the weaknesses for the other position. And I think the strengths are stronger. Anything to add to that?
0: Yeah, there's a great quote. I think it's by uh, Winston Churchill, who says that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other kinds. All millennialism is the worst form of millennialism except for all the other kinds. (laughs) And that's kind of how it, it really is a no system's perfect, which system has the least number of holes in it. And so, yes, I, I think the whole living on, a, uh, on earth with lost people while you're resurrected, uh, there has to be this weird pre-reign of Christ before he can just comes back, come back and be done with it. That to me is further away from other places of scripture than having to squeeze our language a little bit in an already figurative book. So. Sure, Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we confess just how broken and ignorant we are. The problem is not with your word. We confess that your word is clear. It's written to, quote, make wise the simple. That uh, we're to teach it to our kids as they uh, get up and as they sit down and as they go along the way, which mean even kids can understand it. And yet, because of our sin, because of, and I think on this issue, our presuppositions, because of our limitations and our failure to think in uh, kind of Jewish uh, and early Christian ways of thought, we misinterpret your word. So I ask for forgiveness right now, that if I have promoted a system that is incorrect, if I have not been fair to other systems, I pray that you'd forgive me. Uh, we confess that the truth is in your word. You don't just tell it in our minds, yet the Spirit's job is to help us see your word clearly. So would you help us with that? And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that this brings regardless. For those who are post-mill in here, that they know Christ is coming back and the gospel's powerful. For those who are premill, they know that Christ is coming back and the gospel is powerful. For those that are amillennial, they know that Christ is coming back and the gospel is powerful. We're encouraged regardless of our view on that. So would you help us walk in that? We love you and we thank you. We ask this uh, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.